says the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles but to irrigate deserts. By there he means that the average modern student is is a, is a desert, is sterile. There's not an excessive fertility of sentiment. There's not a jungle that needs to be trimmed or, or cut down, but there's a desert. Both deserts and jungles would need to be corrected, but it's the desertification of the modern mind and the modern sensibility that is the more typical error, he's saying. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of my favorite writers and apologists of the Christian faith is none other than C.S. Lewis. Of course, many of our listeners know Lewis. You've read perhaps Mere Christianity or perhaps Narnia, but maybe you have or have not read uh, some of his lectures, including what has been for many years now a book called The Abolition of Man. One of the reasons I keep coming back to this book in particular, The Abolition of Man, is because in our own day, I find that Lewis was so prophetic, maybe in ways he could never even have anticipated, but certainly in ways he did participate and even anticipated in his own day. I think in the 21st century, especially with the value that our culture places on subjectivity, as well as a certain prizing of emotions, and what comes with that, really an understanding of value and ethics that has been quite radically redefined in light of movements like modernity or especially post-modernity. Well, in light of all of that, Lewis actually speaks somewhat as a modern-day prophet, not only giving a critique of those who would turn education at large or even our understanding of the intellectual life to a subjective approach, but Lewis also gives his own solution in a way that really causes us to ask bigger questions about, well, what is reality? And how do we understand then morality itself? And if there is no such thing as an objective virtue, how then do we live our lives in a way that could actually, in the end, be detrimental to our own humanity? Well, these are difficult questions, especially in light of so many of the modern challenges today. And for this reason, Lewis is not only insightful, but he even issues a bit of a rebuke that I think we need to hear today. It's for these reasons that I have asked Michael Ward to come on the Credo podcast. Many of you may know Ward's work. Of course, he has written a number of different books. Uh, some of the books that you may have loved and appreciated in years past, such as his book Planet Narnia, the Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis, or perhaps if you have been in university or perhaps seminary, you are familiar with his book, The Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis, a fine collection of articles and chapters there. 
Michael Ward is part of the Faculty of Theology and Religion at the University of Oxford. He's also a professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. And I can't fail to mention that his most recent project is a book called After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, published, of course, with Word on Fire Academic and accompanied by a new edition of The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, published by Harper One. Michael, thank you for coming on the Credo podcast. Thank you, Matthew. I'm glad to be with you. Now, I suppose for so many of those listening out there, they, of course, know who C.S. Lewis is. They may love C.S. Lewis, but they may or may not be entirely familiar with his book, The Abolition of Man, let alone its context in which Lewis gives birth to these ideas. Michael, can you just take us back in time and give us an understanding for how this book comes about and what is the context in which Lewis really becomes so passionate about his thesis on the abolition of man? Yes, the abolition of man is one of Lewis's less well-known books, and it is one of his more academic books. It's it's a philosophical work, really, and it originated as a series of lectures that he gave at the University of Durham here in England during the Second World War. And the the invitation to deliver those lectures arose from the fact that that Lewis was something of a of a philosopher, especially a moral philosopher. We tend, maybe, if we know Lewis only as the writer of Narnia, to forget that that he actually started his academic career in philosophy. He'd studied philosophy, uh, classical philosophy, as part of his undergraduate degree here in Oxford, and then after he graduated, he his first job was filling in for his old philosophy tutor. And even when he started his career in English, English literature, he continued to take students in philosophy. And so, especially moral philosophy, ethics, questions of value and the objectivity of value were, were subjects that he studied closely and taught at Oxford. And, and so when he was invited to give these lectures at Durham, and rather naturally, he, he chose to, to pursue this, this line of inquiry, which he'd spent so long on uh, already by this stage. The Abolition of Man is quite a dense work, but if people really want to limber up for it, you know, prepare themselves for it, if they're not trained philosophers, and I'm not a trained philosopher myself, um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking to myself as much as to anybody else here, a good way to prepare yourself to read The Abolition of Man is to read or reread the first few chapters of Mere Christianity. Mm. Because mere Christianity opens with a very similar line of argument about value, about objectivity, about the natural law, as Lewis calls it uh, in mere Christianity, namely the fact that, you know, from a Christian perspective, God has created us with a conscience and that God being the, the supreme good has, by creating us in his image, uh, implanted in us something of a, of a natural awareness of the good. And so when we offend against the moral structures of the universe, naturally we feel guilt and shame. And those are universal experiences. You don't have to be a Christian to have experienced guilt or shame. Um, and in mere Christianity, he, he starts on that philosophical footing and then quickly advances to a belief in God and a belief in the Christian God in particular, 
But in the abolition of man, he's he's setting out his stall much more narrowly. He's only making the philosophical case and doing it in a very sort of technically dense way. And he doesn't proceed to questions of theism or Christianity. Mm. Um, so that that's one of the differences between the abolition of man and mere Christianity. But there's enough similarity between the two for, for it to be advantageous to to limber up for abolition by rereading mere Christianity. With the abolition of man, uh, readers may be a bit surprised because sometimes in other books, Lewis, he begins a book in a way that is, it, it eases you in in a way that's almost intoxicating, right? But in the abolition of man, Lewis is, I mean, maybe we could go so far to say he is a bit uh, unnerved. He's a bit upset. He's even impassioned at points because he, well, he's using this as a foil, but he talks about the green book and he's quite upset about some of the major statements that it makes about feelings, for example, Uh, you you know, it uses this illustration of observing a waterfall, for example, and those observing it saying something like just admiring the waterfall's beauty. But the writers of this green book then respond and say, well, that is actually not an observation on the objective reality of the waterfall, but more or less, it's simply a reflection on our merely our own feelings. Lewis is quite disturbed at this point. What why is he so upset at the start of The Abolition of Man? Yes, this green book is the name that Lewis gives to a book that was actually called The Control of Language. So Lewis disguises it with this invented name, and he doesn't refer to the two authors by their real names, uh, Alec King and Martin Ketley, but again, disguises them under the names Gaius and Titius. Um, again, reflecting Lewis's own origin, intellectually speaking, in study of the classics. And he masks it a bit. He distances it so that we don't get too caught up in the in the specifics of who they were and what their book was about. Um, it's really just a kind of springboard, a launching pad into his basic thesis about the objectivity of value. And yes, this green book, which was supposedly a, a book to enable schoolchildren with, with English composition, rather than teaching children about English composition, it, it subtly smuggles in, Lewis says, a subjectivist philosophy, mm. because the authors of the Green Book talk about the occasion when the, the romantic poet, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, was looking at a waterfall, and, well, actually, the, the Green Book doesn't get into all these details, but I, I expound, explicate all the details in my book. The question is whether the waterfall is better described as sublime or merely pretty. The question as to whether a waterfall should be described as sublime or pretty uh, is a question that that is susceptible of a certain amount of debate. There's a difference between, say, Niagara Falls or the Victoria Falls and a mere trickle coming out of you know a, a little stream next to your house. But they're both examples of falling water, but one is obviously much, much larger than the other. <laughs> Therefore, it is, is more likely to attract the epithet sublime than merely pretty. So we can, we can discuss where and debate where the pretty passes over into the sublime or the majestic or the grand or whatever term we happen to want to choose to use. But there's only any point in discussing 
the correct adjective if you and I both agree that there's a real waterfall out there that has its own particular qualities and properties which can be described accurately and intelligently by means of language. But if it's purely a question of, of how you yourself happen to feel privately about the, the object that we're looking at, and if language has no bearing on the matter in terms of you know ac- accurately accounting for the data presented to our senses, then we're, we're lost in a subjectivist world mm-hmm. where there's no objective value to argue about. All we can do is assert our own private preference and say, well, it's it's pretty to me. And if it's pretty to me, then it is pretty. Mm. And who are you to say otherwise? And so any kind of rational discourse about the, the meaning of this waterfall uh, is completely lost. There's, there's no chance of, of any engagement if a subjectivist philosophy is correct. And, and the thing that really gets Lewis's goat is that this green book was supposedly to teach English composition to children. And here it is smuggling in a subjectivist philosophy, which will condition the minds of these children to take one side over another side in a philosophical debate years hence when, when, if ever they actually meet these terms explicitly presented. And that's why he gets so angered by it, really, that it's a kind of subterfuge. It's a, it's a kind of poison, poisoning of the minds of these young children when what the two authors should should have been focusing on is is telling children about about English composition. So those are some of the reasons why Lewis gets so fired up about it. Mm. I can't help but wonder, and, and Michael, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I can't help but wonder if Lewis, even as an educator himself, I mean, there's there's been so much work done, as you know so well, on Lewis and his expertise in, say, medieval literature, for example. But just in general, Lewis as an educator, I can't help but wonder if this uh, this encounter with this Green Book upsets him all the more for that reason. I, there's that famous line that I keep returning to, and this is right at the beginning of the, I think it's in chapter one of The Abolition of Man, where he says the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles but to irrigate deserts. What do you think Lewis means by that? In the context that you just described, how does he see this subjectivity as betraying that purpose of the modern educator? Yes, he says the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. By there, he means that the average modern student is is a, is a desert, is sterile. There's not an excessive fertility of sentiment. There's not a jungle that needs to be trimmed or, or cut down, but there's a desert. Both deserts and jungles would need to be corrected, but it's the desertification of the modern mind and the modern sensibility that is the more typical error, he's saying. What's that got to do with the Green Book? Well, in the Green Book, the authors are subtly conditioning children to be very skeptical, very cynical about any claims of value about, you know, say, waterfalls. They're not saying to the, the children, as it were, well, you're absolutely fascinated by waterfalls and you're, in, you're inclined to you know, spend too much time focusing on them and, and overpraising them and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. They're, they're sort of subtly inducing the children to, to be very knowing and, and suspicious of propaganda that might be wanting to turn them one way or another. 
In other words, by encouraging a kind of cynicism and a wariness about being propagandized, the authors of the Green Book are, are subtly contributing to this desertification, this sterility, this aridity in our emotional and aesthetic responses to the, to the world. And that's why the, the task of the modern educator is not to encourage cynicism and skepticism, but to quite, quite the opposite, to, to make people more open, more responsive, more mm. fertile, so that their responses to the world can be more harmonious, more, more generous, more fruitful, more humane. Mm. Um, that's what he's getting at. For Lewis, this has so many consequences, doesn't it? Because uh, you think of the way he ends that first chapter, very bold, very bold, when he says, what we have now are men without chest. There, there's that famous line. And he, he goes on to say, well, we expect of them virtue and enterprise, and we laugh at, at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. So for Lewis, it's not just that we've gone in the wrong direction. For him, he seems to think, well, this whole mindset of subjectivity, and as you even said, of, of a cynicism, a suspicion, well, this whole mindset, he thinks, uh, puts us in a great contradiction. We still are expecting the same values at the end of the day, but then we're we're shocked, as he says, to, that we find traitors in our midst. And and Lewis, for him, he he's he's appalled. Uh, why do you think this phrase "men without chess"? Uh, Michael, can you help us to understand it better? Yeah. So Lewis presents a, a philosophical picture of the human person in three parts: the head, the chest, and the belly. And the idea is that the head represents our rational side, our intellectual side our ability to apprehend truth. And the belly represents our sensual side, our appetitive side, our passionate side, our, our ability to apprehend meaning. From the neck up in our head, we're like the angels. We're, we're spiritual. From the chest down in our bellies, we are like the animals. But it's the chest which combines those two aspects of the human person, and that makes us the unique thing, a rational animal. Mm. Uh, that's a classic definition of humanity. We're rational animals. We combine the intellectuality of, of the angelic realm with the sensuality of the animal realm. So combine the animal and the angel, you have the anthropological. Combine the human belly and the human brain and the human breast and you have a human being, uh, because it's the human being which he says is the seat of the of magnanimity, and magnanimity means literally great soul. Angels have an intellectual soul. Animals have a sensitive soul, but human beings have both uh, an intellectual and a sensitive soul. That's why we are great souled. So when it comes to questions of traitors in our midst, as you quoted. It's worth remembering that Lewis is giving these lectures during the Second World War, when the question of, of patriotism and treason is a particularly live question. And so I point out in my guide that, you know, just before the publication of The Abolition of Man, two people, two Britons had been found guilty of betraying Great Britain and were executed. And then there was another famous traitor called William Joyce, who his nickname was Lord Haw Haw. 
and he was a broadcaster of German propaganda and he was convicted of treason and hanged at the end of the war. So treachery, betrayal was obviously a live issue for, for people, the immediate audience that Lewis was speaking to. But should it have come as any great surprise that treachery was 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 possible for people when when so much of the of the nobility of, of patriotism and, and the goodness of one's love for one's country and those sorts of values had constantly been undermined by by the cynicism and the and the skepticism which I was talking about earlier. You can't one minute just ridicule your country and its leaders and its traditions and its history and its values. And the next minute say, oh, how terrible that anybody should be betraying this country. <laughs> you know, you've got to be a bit more consistent than that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit like, you know, to bring it up to date a bit. If you don't see any value in, say, uh, sexual continence and chastity and self-control in, in the relations between men and women, you can't be terribly surprised when, for instance, in, in Hollywood, you have the the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Uh, um, you know, Hollywood needs to get it <laughs> to be a bit more consistent. <laughs> mm, yeah. So, that, you know, that's the sort of modern day example. Obviously, Lewis doesn't cite that. That's just my, my, <laughs> my attempt to sort of to, to bring it home to us. It's that kind of integrity of bringing our intellectual ideas and our sensitive apprehensions in, into, into a, a consistent and reliable and stable accord with one another mm. uh, that, is, that is the activity peculiar to the chest, which is the definitively human faculty. Now, Michael, as, as Lewis makes this critique, he, of course, is, is quite bold, but he's also turning to give a substantial answer, solution, a type of content, if you will, that shows where value, for example, should be grounded. And interestingly enough, maybe this surprises some readers, but interestingly enough, Lewis appeals to a concept in Chinese philosophy. Yeah, you even mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Lewis's use of, say, natural law. Lewis's point here isn't to, you know, go on this exploration of Chinese philosophy per se, but he seems to be establishing a type of natural law that is true just universally, which really adds to his point. Is there a type of objective moral value? Is there a moral reality itself that is universal? So talk to us about this strategy of Lewis and how, I mean, this really takes up the, the second part of, of his argument. How does, for Lewis, uh, here he's, I mean, it's not just Chinese philosophy. He is, of course, very aware of a long tradition. Of course, he's talking about the East here, but this could also come out of the West. Uh, everyone from Plato and Aristotle to uh, Jesus and the Apostles to some of the church fathers like Augustine. But regardless, why is this a strategic move for Lewis? Yes, you're quite right. It is a strategic move, or, or you might even say a tactical ploy, to use this Chinese term, the Tao, meaning the way, as a, as a sort of summary term for what you might have expected him to call natural law. But natural law 
is a predictable term, you might say. And it might lead people to suppose that Lewis was just going to be presenting a, a sort of standard Christian argument, you know, drawing on the, on the thinking of uh, Thomas Aquinas, for instance, who's probably the greatest exponent of natural law philosophy within the Christian tradition. Um, but Lewis deliberately doesn't opt for that term, natural law. I think he only uses it once in the, in the course of the entire book. And he reaches all the way over to the East and Confucian philosophy, the Analects of Confucius, and deliberately brings in this unexpected term, the Tao, as a way of wrong-footing those who will assume, who might assume that he's, you know, just going to do the boring old, you know, traditional thing, and reminding people that, or maybe informing people that moral value is indeed universal. And that if you look at human civilizations, human cultures, different traditions, different religions across the world and down through history, you find a remarkable level of unanimity about moral value. And that's something that he brings out particularly in the appendix to the abolition of man, where he, he lists eight moral values, such as duties to one's ancestors and elders, duties to one's children and posterity. Uh, the duty of special beneficence, the duty of general beneficence, the duty of truth-telling, and so on and so forth. And under each of these headings, he then cites any number of different sources showing how, how ubiquitous, how universal the acceptance is of these various moral values. And so he will cite ancient Egyptian, ancient Babylonian, Confucian, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, uh, and any number of other traditions, uh, showing that there's a, a great degree of overlap and agreement between otherwise very diverse and disparate religious and philosophical traditions, which testifies, he suggests, to the fact that moral value is indeed objective and, and self-evident which is why so many human beings have, have come up with such very similar ethical codes. But just because it's self-evident, we can't find any, that is to say, we can't find any deeper ground for these moral values. In other words, when you ask a question, <laughs> when you ask the question, why should I do something? And, and the answer comes back, because it's good. And then you ask, well, why is it good? There's no further answer to be given. Um, it's self-evident. It shines by its own light. If you don't see that uh, murdering innocent people is wrong, then there's not really much more that, that can be said to you. You show yourself to be morally inhuman. This is why he's talking about the abolition of man. This is The recognition of the self-evident goodness of these values uh, is what makes us human. But although they're self-evident, and you can't point to, to deeper uh, explanations of them in the philosophical realm. That doesn't mean obvious. Self-evident is not the same as obvious, mm. which is why children need to be trained in the way of being moral in the Tao. You know, you, you need to tell the, ch the child at the very least to, you know, take your elbows off the table. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't hit your sister with the two by four because it's a, it's something of an effort to become human, 
And if you're just left, you know, in a lawless, anarchic, feral state as a, as a newborn child, you won't grow up into your human inheritance. It's something that has to be instilled and trained and educated, not because we've made it up, not because the, the adults are imposing their own morality on the children, a morality which could have been otherwise. No, no, it could not have been otherwise. It's self-evident. But it's not obvious mm. to, to the young child. Uh, they need to be formed. They need to be molded into, they need to be trained like a, a rose up a trellis so that they will grow strong and healthy and straight. Michael, this uh, strategy that Lewis employs, uh, it, it really is quite genius in many ways because his appeal to this natural law is so instinctive. But like you said, it's not obvious. And, and perhaps this explains why he's so offended by this green book, because where where there is a training needed most, in, in his case with the mind of the modern educator, is with children. And so uh, Lewis is quite uh, disturbed at this point that this subjectivity would be taught to children out of all people because it is a way of sneaking it in. But accompanied with with this whole strategy is also a bit of a polemic because Lewis at the same time is looking at the alternative and here uh this is where Lewis I mean in light of you know since Lewis's death and all that's happened uh this is where Lewis seems to be so prophetic in so many ways giving the advancement of say technology uh biotechnology computer technology and so on and so on and so on Lewis is quite concerned as well that if we go the route of a total subjectivity in which we have no more regard for, say, natural law, he is concerned that, well, are we actually treating nature uh, itself in a way that is right, that, that preserves its own dignity so that we flourish? Or are we actually reducing things to what he calls mere nature? so that we can simply conquer them. And Lewis goes so far to say that, well, if we, if we reduce ourselves to just the conquering of nature, or what he calls mere nature, in the end, do we actually annihilate our own nature? Uh, do we actually undermine what it means to be truly human in the end? What are your thoughts on this polemic in which Lewis is, he's not just pointing out uh, where the subjectivity lies, but he's actually, uh, maybe we could go so far to say he's actually taking a look at science, not so much to attack science, but to actually ask the deeper question of how do we understand, say, natural philosophy itself? What are your thoughts here, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot going on in the, in the third chapter of, of The Abolition of Man, where Lewis is sort of projecting the future trajectory of of a subjectivist dominated culture, uh, that if we increasingly see value as purely the pro projection of, of our individual whims, preferences, desires, then what we're effectively embracing is the will to power, that anything we happen to want to say is right and desirable at any given moment suddenly is right and desirable. In other words, we're not restrained or constrained by the data, by the substance of, of the world in which we live, 
it's just a question of asserting our own will. The picture that he paints is is rather dystopian. It's a rather apocalyptic vision that he's giving in that third chapter, and that's why it's called that third chapter, The Abolition of Man, like the book as a whole is called The Abolition of Man, because we really will be abolishing our nature. If we see that our na- if we claim that our nature is nothing more than what we say our nature is, then what we've done is basically erased our nature, or, or rather identified it with one part of our nature, namely our will. And, and so the, the sort of Nietzschean Superman horror begins to raise its head, and, and, and that's what Lewis is forecasting uh, in the third chapter. Um, and it's not a very attractive uh, vision of the future. And Lewis is writing in 1943, but what he says back then it seems to me to have only become more relevant and more uh, perceptive as as the decades have gone by. So that, yeah, you now find people, alas, uh, treating themselves as, as so much raw material to be cut up and chopped about as as they happen to want. And likewise, we more generally are, are chopping up the natural world, the natural environment, mm-hmm. just to suit our own purposes, regardless of any sort of innate integrity that it might have that deserves our continued respect. So it's a very prophetic book, The Abolition of Man. It's Lewis's most prophetic and philosophical work. And it's interesting that it's not just Christians or people of faith that find the book important and and uh, timely there is here in britain an atheist philosopher called john gray who has a very high admiration for the abolition of man in, in, indeed he recently broadcast all about the abolition of man on bbc radio here in this country because he he agrees with lewis's philosophical position on objective value he doesn't agree with lewis on questions of theism and christianity but he does believe he does agree with him on this question of the natural law, which you know, from a Christian point of view, is is very encouraging. And this is one of the reasons why Lewis bothers to spend so much time developing this philosophical case, because he sees that, that there's a point of contact with with what you know traditionally is called men of goodwill, you know, people from outside the Christian tradition who nonetheless recognize something of of the natural law. And this philosophical bridge can be thrown, a rope bridge, as it were, can be thrown across to those people and and points of contact can be made. And and that's a great step gained because you can only be a theist. You can only be a Christian if you're a human being first. And what does it mean to be a human being? One of the things philosophically is that we recognize the objectivity of value. And that's why it's such a a seminal book, The Abolition of Man. It's it's admired across the spectrum it's a it's a really brilliant work it's it's well worth getting sinking your teeth into if if you haven't yet read it it's it's difficult it's admittedly one of his hardest works but that's why i've written this guide to make it more accessible and as i said earlier on i'm no philosopher myself i i don't find the abolition of man myself very easy i find it very interesting but not at all easy and i've noticed when trying to teach it to my students that they often sort of bounce off it, or they immediately just try to convert it into a, a purely Christian argument. Now, of course, it's compatible, absolutely compatible with Lewis's Christianity, but it is a philosophical argument in its in its own right. 
We've been talking to Michael Ward. He is the author of many books on Lewis, such as Planet Narnia or his Cambridge companion to C.S. Lewis. Uh, He's also the author of After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. To our listeners, uh, you come to this podcast on a regular basis, but you do so wanting to understand how theology could even be prophetic in light of the many challenges, many moral challenges of our own century. I can't help but uh, be reminded of something Lewis himself says in The Abolition of Man, uh, a warning, in fact, when he warns us against what he calls the magician's bargain, uh, which essentially is to give up our own soul in order to get power in return. But Lewis goes on to warn that if we give up our soul for that power, in the end, that power destroys us. It even dehumanizes us as we treat ourselves not as really those who have been made in the image of God, but as raw material, as Michael just told us. For that reason, I can't encourage our listeners enough. Yes, pick up Michael Ward, but also pick up Lewis himself. It is a more uh, academic, even philosophical book, but Lewis is actually bringing you uh, face-to-face with the challenges of our own day, challenges that he anticipated, uh, but challenges that bring us back not just to any moral philosophy, but to a moral philosophy that's grounded in a natural law that uh, points us ultimately to bigger questions about theism. If you've been joining the Credo Podcast, make sure that you revisit past episodes. Until next time, I'm Matthew Barrett, and continue to join us as we think theologically about the most important questions today with some of the most important theologians of our day. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.